podcast from Glasgow International, bringing together artists and curators in creative conversation. Find us at glasgowinternational.org. My name is Margaret Salmon, and I'm an artist, filmmaker, educator, mother, etc. Hi, I'm Kirstine MacDonald. I'm sitting in the office of Chapter 13, which is a curatorial cooperative. I'm an independent curator and researcher based in Glasgow. In this episode, Margaret Salmon and Kirstine MacDonald discuss how feminist economics was the starting point for their new exhibition. Our project for GI 2021 is an adaptation of a project we were working on for GI in 2020. We're still based in the Pierce Institute in Govan using one of the large halls in the building, but we've actually changed the space that we'd already been working in which means that the exhibition changed slightly in the hiatus period of lockdown last year. But the exhibition is called Home Economics and the heart of the exhibition is a new film by Margaret, accompanied by other works by Margaret and some photographs by Frankie Raffles that were taken in and around Govan in 1988 and 1989. Frankie Raffles was a socialist feminist photographer who had a very short but prolific career where she produced studies of women at work in various locations all over the world. So as I say, the heart of the exhibition is really worked through the development of Margaret's new film, which is called Icarus After Amelia. Yeah, it's a film that I started before lockdown last year. It's actually not so different from what I had planned at the time. I suppose I was approaching it as an introduction to feminist economics and trying to begin to unpack and understand or even represent notions of value and labor and the kinds of work that women do in sort of everyday life, in govern in particular. But of course, pandemic in between, (laughs) you know, the pandemic really sort of magnified a lot of the things that I was thinking about and and the ideas and the everyday sort of instances of care, which I wanted to highlight. So yeah, in in some ways it it became the right moment for the film to be made for better or for worse. And that's, that's at the the heart of what, what I've placed in the exhibition. And then there are other elements like photographic prints which I made and and installed, which shows some of the kind of paraphernalia or the sort of materials or the spillages that occur around making something, a film like that. And then also looking at sort of the process of making photographs, which I generally do when I'm filming as a form of research. And then there were these sculptures, which are also sort of an entry point into kind of thinking or visualizing or finding ways to represent ideas or feelings or politics, all kinds of things. It's a bit like a little cosmos <laughs> that <laughs> was created around the film, the making of the film. And so it's an opening up of part of my practice that I probably wouldn't normally share so openly. Uh, so that felt really exciting. And then to be shown in the context of Raffles' work, and also in a space in the building where I actually made the film is really exciting. It's a beautiful space also. Yeah, that's one of the things that everyone says when they walk in the room, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's 
I guess that's the thing that the building itself does influence the kind of approach to how this project's come about because there's a very specific kind of history and gendered context within the building. And the room itself was the billiard room in the Pierce Institute when it opened in 1906. The building opened as a site for education, recreation and kind of socialising for workers and govern and perhaps unusually for the time, it wasn't just a men's working club, it was actually a large centre for women and men and children. So there were a number of activities that happened in the building and it has a a man's entrance and a woman's entrance. So as Margaret says, the kind of commitment to a kind of feminist way of looking or a feminist way of working that underpins the show overall was kind of carried into this inhabitation of the billiard room, which would have been one of the areas that was in the exclusively male part of the building originally. Yeah, it's interesting to think about what the show would have been in the larger hall downstairs, which has now been taken over by a food pantry. You know, it's been transformed in its own way. But the change to the billiards room and the notion of occupying a space that was dedicated to a kind of gendered experience of le- leisure. It was an exciting change of events, actually, in the end. And it felt like really fertile ground to sort of make some sort of response. Yeah. So there's even billiard balls, like, in the exhibition. And a friend of mine helped me to kind of cut them in half, sort of slice them in half, and then play on this notion of, like, disrupting that leisure time but also poetic puns on notions of the other half. So hopefully fruitful for people to kind of encounter. Hmm. What I've noticed from kind of tracking along the process of the making of the film is that you have a really open attitude to this idea of collaboration. And so in the film, there are a number of songs and texts which are presented by a number of voices And I think it's really interesting to know more about the way your thought process operates in terms of how you're working with those collaborations and how you give up the space for different kinds of textures to appear within the film. Yeah, I think I would just die a slow death if I showed up in a studio and had to build everything from my imagination and you know, impose words and all kinds of things on people. I'm I'm much, much more interested in just being present with the camera and and sometimes without, you know, at first without. But then really my job as an editor is to just recognise the value of those performances or those interactions and then try to place those materials together in a way which might embed some meaning. Mm-hmm. It felt like I had such like golden materials to work with from like collaborators like Tracy Ann Campbell and I've actually not said Donna's last name out loud. Machiocha, Machiocha. I have to ask Donna. This is what happens when you um, do things remotely. I've only emailed her, but they made this incredible contribution to the film in this song that they wrote and performed together we're going to make it in a man's world and then the instrumental kind of tracks they made too we're gonna make it in a man's world we're gonna make it in a man's world we're gonna make 
I think most people I've spoken to about Tracy Ann's voice say that they feel like crying when they hear her voice anyway. But yeah. I think especially in the context of coming out of lockdown, not having been in different kinds of spaces outside of our domestic lives, apart from queuing outside for shops and coffee. And then to come into this beautiful space in in the Pierce Institute and to hear this beautiful kind of acoustic with this beautiful voice. And Donna's voice and her harmonies that add to that, the two voices together just sound incredible. Because there's such a, um, a tender dynamic between like, trying to grapple with issues that are at play, like, you know, the central focus of the film, but also to understand that, like, li life goes on and we all, women are living brilliant lives, you know, like, are, are out there, like, persevering and also thriving and, and, and spreading so much hope and beauty in the world. There is, you know, there's a sense of a shadow below that of the kind of, wow, how great would it be if things were more equal? You know, if there was more recognition of the work that they do, but at the same time, we're still here, we're still living, we still need to keep pushing and we still need to keep having fun and singing and celebrating, you know? Mm. And yeah, there's so many different voices. I was, you know, in Midya Jan, the Kurdish singer at the end of the film, you know, also Maria Fusco. Like, I'm quite emotional when I hear them, actually. <laughs> I think everyone gets emotional at the moment. Yeah, they're just like, they're just so, you know, they just make me, I'm just happy they're here, they're in the world. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing to celebrate. All of these voices in the film, whether it's women talking about their daily routine of feeding and cleaning a child. Midja's really tender song, which speaks to another place. It speaks to homeland or it speaks to a kind of connection, an emotional connection with somewhere that isn't here. Maria Fusco's incredible, incredible accent and voice and delivery of the poem. We will make exactly the same movement 100 times an hour. Our stitches converging into... Even with the old machines, we could have a bit of a breather. Control R, the next break. Now, the machine controls the pace. Owns R, the machine is never tired. All of these things are so strong, so tender, yeah, within the work itself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What are your feelings about collaboration? Could you speak a bit about chapter 13 and the process there? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is that um, with chapter 13, we don't talk about collaboration, we talk about cooperation. Um, so the idea was that rather than competing with one another for the kind of opportunities or funding or spaces that are available in Glasgow to do work, we could mitigate against these kind of really clear ideas of competition that exist in the cultural sector and in the way that the art world's framed and to work together under a banner of mutual support. So the way that we function is that each of us develops our own projects as we would if we were working independently, but that all the members of the cooperative contribute time and labour to that process 
So instead of all of us writing separate funding applications, maybe we write those together. Instead of one person installing the show, there are multiple people to do that installation work, planning, the administration, the marketing, all the other things (laughs) that being part of a festival demands of a project. (laughs) So this proposal initially for GI, as it was developed for 2020, was for me to develop a kind of curatorial research around the subjects of feminist economics, social reproduction theory, and um, and Margaret to develop these ideas towards a new project. So it was very much a process of working in parallel with one another. And can you speak a little bit about the Frankie Raffles images and the connection with the peers as well? Well, this again goes back to the building, right? So... <laughs> Again, the building, the Pierce Institute itself, really underpins a lot of the thinking about the project overall, partly because the building was funded by the profits made at the Fairfield shipyard, which was co-owned by William Pierce, who was Govan's first MP. After he died, his widow, uh, Lady Dina Pierce, invested this money into making this building, which still runs today as an independent building serving the people of Govan. So for over 100 years, it's maintained its status in its original form, which I think is very unusual these days. I think it's an incredibly unusual entity to have a building of this scale and beauty that um, still has survived for over 100 years to produce and reproduce spaces which are of value and use to its immediate neighbours, who are the people who are the citizens of this part of Glasgow. Because of the wonderful show that Jenny Brownrigg curated at the Glasgow School of Art in 2017, which was the first real close look at Frankie Raffles' work, I discovered that Frankie had had a solo exhibition in this building at the Pierce Institute in 1990 for Glasgow's City of Culture Year. Mm-hmm. And it feels like, you know, GEI is a festival which grows out of this tradition of using festivals and cultural programs as a form of regeneration or a form of cultural tourism. That really began in Glasgow with the Garden Festival, which was very close to here in 1988, and then on to the the Year of Culture, the City of Culture. So we were paying attention to these ideas of um, the kind of structures by which cultural projects come into being, but also that Frankie had already had this relationship with this building. And then that led me to look into the archive that's held at St Andrews University of her entire body of work, which is over 40,000 images. So it felt like as Margaret embarked on this development of a new film and photographs that were looking very closely at women in this immediate area of Govan, at work and work meaning paid and unpaid work that it also made sense to kind of honour Frankie's work in some way that had been shared here in 1990. What we have is a selection of images, there are around 20 which we're presenting, which were taken in Govan High School in various textile factories in the area but also food manufacturing that was nearby in Shettleston and other industrial parts of Glasgow alongside images from Caverna, which was the name of the Norwegian company who bought over the nationalised company that was on the site of the Fairfield shipyard, which is the shipyard owned by William Pierce. 
So we kind of go full circle with those images, looking at the building itself here and how it was bequeathed to the people of Govan by a woman in her philanthropic work and then through to Frankie Raffles having the exhibition here, but through to images that she made back on the site of the source of the funds for this building, which has been through processes of private and nationalised ownership over different decades and different periods as work has changed and capital systems have globalised and so on. Um, that sits alongside Margaret's very um, close and sensitive investigation of these notions that lie behind feminist economics. You know, feminist economics. I mean, these issues were, <laughs> you know, well, we could say centuries. Who knows? Centuries easily, yeah. <laughs> I mean, and who knows how long. You know, I mean, I'd love it if there wasn't a need for feminist economics. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, Absolutely. And we've been through a year, you know, at the beginning of lockdown last year, there were so many headlines and um, reports written about the adverse effect on women and girls of the responses to the COVID pandemic. But there's very little attention paid at a really micro level to the individual lives of every woman who's had to take on more care responsibility or or every person who, with a care responsibility who has been restricted from leaving their home, who's been forced to live in a kind of intense microcosm of care work 24-7 without respite. And these are not things which were not happening before COVID, but they've certainly been exacerbated by that. And I think the film really sits within this moment of not forgetting. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the hope. I've, you know, and it, it felt like I wasn't sure how it would work out because some of the footage was just before there's a mixture of things, right? There's some some footage I shot just before lockdown last year. And then that's also mixed with like sort of um, more recent. So you can see there's a, sort of like scenes with masks, scene, scenes without masks. Yeah. We have to reassure all of the audience that we work under the proper government guidelines of mask wearing at all times post-March 2020. But of course, there's lots of footage and and photographs within the show, which um, were, they were just in the moment, weren't they, Margaret? We were out and about in Govan just two weeks before lockdown was called. So there was this imminent threat of something called the COVID pandemic heading our way, but we were out on the streets of Govan <laughs> with camera equipment going to places, filming people. It really feels like the film kind of captured that last moment before things changed. Yeah, so I mean, it's it's nice to see that footage actually, and to remember, you know, it's not so long ago. In some ways, like we, I wasn't sure how it would be to re-encounter it, how I would work with it. As we were seeing in the introduction, the film is called Icarus After Amelia, and some mm -hmm. of the footage that appears in the film, which is the thing which everyone's most excited about, which is that you went up on a plane about three. <laughs> with a 35mm Bolex camera and shot footage of our location in Govan and the, our site within Glasgow from the air. So Icarus, there was a film proposal I was supposed to make a few years ago that I was going to call Icarus that was going to be filming from potentially a helicopter and I was really interested in, in shooting 
35 millimeter from like aerial cinematography. So I had this kind of like nugget of this idea, like of Icarus and aerial work. And then, and then the story about Amelia Earhart, I was thinking about Amelia Earhart as a figure who sort of like becomes lost. So there's a sense with Icarus of having a set of tools, but being told you can't, you know, you can't fly to the sun, you know, in some ways, Women now, you know, have access to so many freedoms and yet we're still sort of living within quite a restrained set of opportunities. And in some ways it felt like Icarus and Amelia were interesting figures to offer ways of understanding that condition and maybe through understanding that condition, proposing something better for women. And then there was a specific story about Amelia Earhart landing in a farmer's field in Northern Ireland. Maria Fusco told me about this instance. So this is a true story. And then there was this recording that I found of the farmer's wife. I believe her name was Mrs. Robinson, um, who, who narrates, you know, at the end of the film, she narrates very beautifully the experience of, you know, discovering a, a plane landing in your field in, I guess, the 1930s, maybe? 1932, I think. It was. 1932, and, and it being a woman, and then her kind of spending the night and her wanting to care for her, essentially. I suspected she'd be very hungry, so I got a meal ready for her. She said she hadn't had anything but tomato juice since she left America gives her clothes to sleep in and, and thinks of feeding her, you know, is one of her first kind of thoughts, that she might be hungry. The other thing Mrs. Robinson says is that she didn't have any money on her. And she said, my husband soon sorted that out. Yeah. <laughs> Again, that story really talks to a, a, a kind of way of society structural organising, right? Talks about the man's responsibility as well as the woman's. Mm -hmm. The audio at the beginning of the film, she talks about, you know, and when she's in the plane, how she needs to use the apparatus of the plane in order to navigate. I could not see even to the wingtips, and I could only know that I was flying right side up by what my instruments told me. And in some ways, this kind of blind trust that we have in a sort of economic theory or a sense of what is the economy what is valuable that, you know, in the end she says her trip was of no real significance, you know, <laughs> the fact that she was a woman and she flew across, uh, piloted an airplane on her own across the Atlantic. You know, there's also the sense of dismissiveness, you know, dismissing her own achievement, which, you know, the, the way the two voices and the women performed, very gendered attitudes. It was really fascinating. I can still hear her nice matter-of-fact voice saying about her flight, as though it had been rather a long motor drive on a cold day. It has no significance in aviation and is only a personal satisfaction to me. And, the, and then the footage itself, I mean, really um, amazingly, and this was not planned, when we went up in the plane, it was with the Glasgow Flight Club, and um, it was on the very day that Amelia Earhart would have been flying from Northern Ireland to, to Paris to complete her flight across the Atlantic. So, and that was just incidental. It was absolutely nuts. And we were up in the sky and, and I, yeah, I was shooting on an Airy 2C 
35 millimeter camera and that's um it, it's quite a tricky camera to use um and and perhaps it would have been in use at the time when Amelia was flying as well I wonder what age is the camera I don't know I think it's like maybe it was developed during World War II it could have been earlier even I'll have to find out so then being able to sort of the pilot was incredible and uh and we had this amazing session where I sort of, I really wanted to get aerial footage over Glasgow in particular, Govan, but then also to film clouds. So we were really blessed that night. I was able to get, you know, really wonderful clear footage of Govan and then these sort of low lying clouds, cumulus clouds over the highlands just near Loch Lomond. And then when we finished, he, I, I'd run out of film and then the pilot had me he wanted me to pilot the plane as well <laughs> so I ended up flying it at the end of the shoot and then he landed I didn't land the plane so it was quite thrilling it was quite thrilling. I would love you to have landed the plane I know. <laughs> no you wouldn't like your your um symbolic arrival in Glasgow <laughs> as Amelia on the day of her of her solo flight yeah it was quite it was quite something <laughs> but it's the first film I've shot on this new camera I wanted to ask you about that today about just this move back to 35 millimeter after a couple of years where you've been working with 16 millimeter this camera was just well it was just kind of <laughs> just the most affordable 35 mil. <laughs> Oh yeah, economic question. <laughs> yeah, so it was sort of like passed on from another. It was this uh, experimental filmmaker William Ruban's camera, and actually the lenses were his as well. And I bought them sort of directly from him. He was, I guess, kind of clearing out some of his equipment. I mean, I think there's all kinds of uh, like other things that go on when you're filming on thirty-five and. You know, one of them is just practically speaking, there's, you know, there's less footage, there's less material. So, you know, when you're working, it's very brief. You know, most of these women, maybe I shot one roll or two rolls of film of each of them. So a roll of film would be maybe like four minutes. Like say, for instance, Midja, I did shoot two rolls of film in her house, you know, and I, I, I used quite a bit of that. So every time I picked up the camera, it had meaning. It was like urgent. It was, you know, I, I decided to, and we knew what we were doing. It wasn't just happenstance. Um, so there's a kind of purposefulness in the act of filming in that way and on that material, which adds to me a sort of sense of personal and uh, investment, you know, in, in that moment and in, in making something come from that together. So, yeah, it's, it's not easy though. It's not an easy way. It's fairly exhausting <laughs> and the camera is really heavy. And I, I mean, I think it's been fascinating to get to this moment and to figure out, like it, it feels slightly more surreal I haven't quite engaged with GI across the city just yet. Like I'm, I'm looking forward to doing that, but I, I am surprised at how, um, how kind of shocked I am in terms of like engaging with the world physically through an exhibition again. I, d I didn't think it would be such, um, such a radical experience, but actually it does feel really significant and um, I suppose it's just really important to not underestimate like what we've all been through collectively and individually.
I'm the opposite of Margaret. I I got really excited suddenly about seeing art again and went crazy and went round like so many shows over the weekend and bumped into so many people I haven't seen for such a long time. And I'm exhausted from the number of conversations and the amount of stimulation I've had. And I need to go back into some kind of hibernation for a few days, I think. I mean, it's like, it's beautiful that the weather is lightening up and the world seems to be, you know, full of bounty suddenly. (laughs) And art, you know, the city suddenly is plump with art. So I'm excited about that, but also just kind of, um, yeah, just processing so much as you do when you make anything. And it's such a massive effort to make a film. It's pretty immense when you're at the finish line. Feel almost like I won't begin to understand until we've taken down the show and packed it up and it's not there anymore. <laughs> yeah. That will be the moment where it sinks in that it happened. It feels like an incredible achievement, I have to say. I mean, I really can't underplay the amount of endeavour it's taken from everyone, especially Margaret, to put so much love and care into making something to be ready to open on these dates. Um, but I think until it's all over, we won't really know that we've done it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a bit like a dream at the moment. Yeah, yeah. It does. It will It will take time, I think. And I'm so glad that we've done it and that it exists. So. Absolutely. It's well worth a visit to govern people. It really is. Yeah, I mean, but it's so specific to that building. There's so many levels of the mm-hmm. exhibition and the film itself that you kind of, you will not appreciate unless you see it in that space. Margaret Salmon and Kirstine MacDonald. Find out more about their exhibition, Home Economics, at glasgowinternational.org. Encounters was produced by Lindsay Moyes for Glasgow International, supported by the Scottish Government's Expo Fund and Arts Fund. Thank you for listening.